Hello, this is John Cleese, and you're listening to the Podcast Network. But if we're honest, we will look into the mirror and see what the truth is, and see what the truth is, and see what the truth is. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. My name is Cameron Riley. You're listening to the No Illusions podcast on the Podcast Network. If you're a first-time listener, this is a show where we talk about politics, science, philosophy, social justice, try and scratch the surface of the world and figure out what's really going on and where is it all leading. We try and dispel the illusions by which many of us uh, lead our lives that are perpetuated by the propaganda of the mainstream media and large corporations. My guest today is a podcaster who produces an excellent podcast on the singularity, the technological singularity to be exact. He records under the name of Socrates, but he's also known as Nikola Danilov. Now, I wanted to get Nicola on the show because I'm a fan of his show, and I often think, you know, people who produce a podcast and who interview, uh, you know, stellar guests, as Nicola has done on his show for the last 18 months, have a certain perspective that few of us have. They, they go deep into this subject. They speak to some of the finest minds in the world on that subject and, and consequently have an interesting perspective. And I think sometimes we should interview the podcasters more often about what they've learnt. So I invited Nicola to come on the show and talk about the technological singularity and also to talk about what he's learnt over the last couple of years from interviewing people like Werner Vinger and Ray Kurzweil, Stephen Wolfram, Peter Diamandis and many, many other stellar thinkers. This show is sponsored by Perdomo Cigars, which is my day job, my other day job apart from producing podcasts on the podcast network. It's the thing that funds everything else these days. P-E-R-D-O-M-O cigars.com.au if you're in Australia. Perdomo cigarsasia.com if you're in the rest of the world. If you're into premium hand-rolled, very fine quality cigars, check us out. Um, in fact, I'm smoking one. During this interview, I got in very early this morning. It was like 7.30 my time we did the interview. I'm sitting here having a coffee and a Podomo Lot 23 Natural. Uh, perfect way to start the day. If you're not interested in such things, forget I ever mentioned it. Anyway, let's kick off with a bit of a chat with Nicola. Well, uh, my name is uh, Nicola Danilov. Um, I am 35 years old. I was born and grew up in Bulgaria. Um, in the late 90s, I left. I lived for about a year at the United, in the United States where I was going to college. Um, then I moved to Canada uh, where I completed my university education. And uh, afterwards, I started podcasting. Uh, for a website and a blog that I found, uh, which are called respectively singularitysymposium.com and singularityweblog.com. So I guess you could say that currently I am a full-time blogger and podcaster too, by the way. I have a podcast which is called uh, Singularity One-on-One. And I'm a big fan. Um, Oh, thank you. So tell me about Bulgaria. 
Well, um, I don't know where to begin with. Uh, Bulgaria is a very complicated place. <laughs> I love, uh, I mean, I, I've never been ashamed to say that I was born and grew up in Bulgaria. Uh, I've always been happy to admit it. Uh, Bulgaria is an incredible place. It's a very small country uh, in southeastern Europe, for those who are unfamiliar with the geography. It borders uh, Turkey, Greece, former Republic of Yugoslavia, Romania, and the Black Sea. Uh, it's a very old country. It's about 1,300 years old. It was founded in 681. Uh, but because it's at the crossroads between Europe and Asia, um, pretty much everyone has gone through there, from the Romans to the Crusaders to the Ottomans, uh, you name it. So it, it's a very, um, not multicultural, but it has lots of uh, traces from different empires and different states. Um, yeah, and currently it is uh, undergoing, it has been undergoing serious political changes for the last 20 years, and I, I'm afraid it has a long way to go still. <laughs> and, and what uh, prompted you to leave? Well, you know, I've always loved philosophy, and <laughs> Socrates once said that, you know, I was born an Athenian, but I'm a citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. Um so that's how I felt. You know, I, I never want to underplay the fact that, you know, I was born Bulgarian and I would always remain to be. But I am also a Canadian at the moment. And um, the reason why I'm proud to be Canadian is not for any other nationalistic um, reasons, but for the reasons that you could be anyone and still be Canadian. So you could be Bulgarian Canadian, you could be Arab Canadian, you could be Jewish Canadian, you could be, you know, Chinese Canadian, it doesn't matter, you're still Canadian. In other words, um, perhaps one of the most uh, multicultural societies that I've witnessed so far is Canada, and especially here in a, in a city like Toronto, which is about six or seven million people, uh, of which I think 60 or 70 percent have been born abroad. And the vast majority of them do have accent, uh, like me, similarly to me. And it's just amazing. I love it. Fantastic. So tell me about how you... Well, let's start with a definition. Give me your current definition of the singularity. If you ran into somebody at a bar and they said, what's the singularity? What would you say? Well, uh, you know, there's a number of competing definitions, but... For me, I would refer to the technological singularity simply as the event or sequence of events which are likely to occur at or after the birth of artificial intelligence. So there's no singularity without AI? Well, that's, that again depends very much on the interpretations, but my specific reading of it is it would be very hard to have a a singularity proper without artificial intelligence it, because okay let's let's just step backwards a little bit in mathematics a singularity is a problem with undefined answer in physics a singularity is a black hole that is a place where the laws of the universe don't hold to be true as we know them that's a place where the fabric of time and space ruptures as it as it is 
Um, so in a sense, the moment when we have the birth of artificial intelligence, we stop being the smartest entities on the planet. And therefore, at that moment, everything will change so radically that we are going to be unable to model the future anymore. And for this reason, anything falling short of this would not be radical enough, in my opinion, to warrant the name singularity properly. What about if we nailed molecular nanotech and we could create any object that we wanted from basic elements from the ground up? Wouldn't that constitute uh, everything? All, all the rules are broken. We can we can extend our lifespan indefinitely. We can create uh, anything from a molecular blueprint. Economics breaks down because you don't need to buy stuff anymore. You can make it in your nanofabricator. Wouldn't that get pretty, mm-hmm. pretty damn close? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point actually. Um, now again, the, the argument would be um, whether it goes far enough. Uh, because, for example, it is not implausible to consider that you might have uh, nanotechnology without um, accomplishing immortality or without being able to uh, sustain uh, uh, life expectancy, uh, uh, longevity for an indefinite period of time. Um, and again, a definition is a very sort of... Um, uh, you have to make a consensus when you embrace a definition. So I just for the purposes of brevity, uh, try to give the, the shortest definition possible. Uh, but we can unpack that a lot more, and it definitely involves um, nanotechnology uh, or other breakthroughs potentially in genetics, um, also um, bioinformatics, uh, perhaps uh, space, any technology which, or computer science, any technology which exhibits so-called exponential growth. Is it also the rapture of the nerds? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, It has often been referred as the rapture of the nerds, or um, Jaron Lanier once called it the church of robotics. Mm -hmm. And the argument goes along the lines that just like uh, Christianity promises, for example, the the second coming of Christ um, and eternal life, for all true believers uh, and salvation for those who have repented their sins. Similarly, um, we are going to uh, have this techno-utopia, which allegedly is the singularity, and uh, that specific moment is equalized to, to the second coming of Christ. And Ray Kurzweil is often given as an example of the prophet. Now, that's the argument. I personally believe that while there are certainly some similarities, there are some very notable differences, which, in my opinion, completely destroy the claim that this is a kind of a rupture of the nerds or a new religion for geeks, if you will. Most notably, um, for me, it comes down to the scientific principle and the scientific method, moreover, and the fact that one has to be willing to follow the evidence no matter where it takes us. So if you start with a certain hypothesis, uh, for example, that Christ was the son of God or something like that, then you should have certain ways and tools to test that hypothesis. Once you start testing that hypothesis, you would come to 
accumulate certain amount of evidence. Then you go back to your original hypothesis and then you compare whether your hypothesis can account properly for the evidence that you have gathered so far and that you are gathering. And if uh, there's an incompatibility between the evidence and the hypothesis, then therefore uh, you have to either adapt or eventually discard the whole hypothesis, right? So the, the crucial difference is that in religion, you basically accept the truthfulness of, of, of the hypothesis on faith. And rule number one is you never question it. <laughs> and you can't question it because if you do start questioning it, then people say that you lack faith. In science, in contrast, everything starts not with faith, but with doubt. So the scientific method is basically, um, in a way, a recursive uh, process of trial and error. And each time in which you find that you have an erroneous kind of a hypothesis, you simply discard it until you find a better one. Where would you say that your feelings towards the singularity are at this point in time? Are they in the category of faith? Do you believe it's going to happen? Do you think it is more of a scientific probability? How, how strongly do you believe in the likelihood of the singularity? Well, I mean, you know, it in a way, take for example Buddhism. I, I, am, I have to, to make the disclaimer that I'm, a, you know, a complete atheist. However, um, if there's one religion which I'm very sympathetic towards, that is Buddhism. And the reason for that is simple, that Buddhism is the only, and especially Zen Buddhism, is the only religion which can tolerate atheism. And, and people who are otherwise non-believers. Um, so the reason I said this is because you can choose um, the type of Buddhism you can embrace and how religious or non-religious and therefore atheistic it can be. Likewise, perhaps you can have people who are embracing the definition of uh, the singularity and embracing the potentiality as religion, which is a great mistake in my opinion. And there are people like me who simply believe that based on the evidence that we have so far, this is a very probable, very likely outcome. Um, and um, also I keep open mind, in, or in other words, what Buddhists call beginner's mind, and in light of new evidence, I am always, always open to reconsider my uh, predictions or my personal beliefs, right? So the, the more evidence we have in support of the singularity, as I believe we do, the more likely it is to happen. So if you look back at the last hundred years and look at things like Moore's Law, for example, and people who have predicted the demise of it, Numerous times, every decade, scientists have predicted that Moore's law cannot hold on. Um, and every time it has, they have been proven wrong. So we have that for at least 50 years or 40 years or so. Um, now, Ray, in his book, uh, made the observation that even before the invention of microprocessors, we had Moore's law holding true for, for example, vacuum tubes. Um, and even before that, 
for the first uh, uh, sort of computers that were being used in the 1880s to do the first American census and stuff like that. So every time we have a different paradigm or a different uh, substrate on which Moore's law um, continues to hold true, uh, but the, the law itself, the exponential growth, sustains itself. Uh, and that's only one example, right? So, um, I, I, as I said, it all comes down to the evidence. And for me, if I'm to rate the probability of the singularity, I would say it, it's for me more than 60% that it is very likely to occur within the next 20 to 40 years. One of the other interesting differences, I think, between uh, Christians who believe in their rapture and the singularity believers, let's call us that, is that okay. I would say that most, uh, if not all, I think it's one of the necessary precepts to being a, a Christian uh, rapturian is you believe the rapture is going <laughs> to be a good thing. Yeah. Because you believe that you're one of the, the beloved and you're going to rise to heaven and everyone else is uh, not going to be looked after. But you, you think of it as a good thing. Not and, and but not necessarily true with people who believe in the probability of the singularity. There are people who believe it to be true. Uh, Bill Joy, classic example, who think it's probably not going to be a good thing, and there are others mm-hmm. like yeah. Ray who who thinks it's probably going to be a, a good thing. Although we could define what means a good thing in this context. What about yourself, Nicola? Do you think of the singularity as something you're uh, anticipating, uh, looking forward to? you think it's going to be a good thing? Do you think it's going to be a bad thing? How do you feel about it emotionally? Well, emotionally, I feel excited. Um, that's the word that I would use. However, whether, whether, uh, w- when we start putting normative evaluation on, on an event like that, uh, whether it would be positive or, or negative, um, that really is is very hard to predict and and um, um, it could go either way that doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't take away from my excitement and I believe that it could be a very 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 positive thing it could be unparalleled positive thing for our civilization and that's why it's, it's a singularity on the other hand I cannot deny the possibility that it could go extremely wrong uh, and it can lead to the annihilation of the human species, basically. And would that be a bad thing? Well, again, you know, bad thing for us as a species, if we go extinct, perhaps it would be a bad thing. Now, in cosmic terms, I don't know if it would be a good thing or a bad thing, but as purely self-interested member of the, you know, Homo sapiens family, I would say, if we do go extinct, that would be a very bad thing. However, as I said, it it doesn't have to go this way. I believe that we can take it uh, completely the other way around. In other words, it can actually lead us to uh, overcome scarcity. Uh, nanotechnology, as you mentioned before, that is a is a great example, which holds the potential to destroy the world the so-called gray goose scenario, or to 
provide unlimited resources of any kind, resolve poverty, uh, resolve uh, issues like global hunger and stuff like that, and provide cheap means to um, call to to for us to colonize the rest of the of the galaxy, if not the universe. Um, so that's one example which could go either way. But I'm still very excited about nanotechnology because, you know, just like, you know, ever since the first human being um, created the plow, right? You could, you could uh, create an iron plow and, and, and feed your family or you can make an iron sword and you can go to war, which could eventually lead to the extinction of humanity. Um, still, I think the discovery of iron was a very, very... And the Iron Age was an age of substantial progress for humanity. Likewise, the age of the singularity or the age of nanotechnology would be even more so a potentially positive event for for our race. And therefore, um, that's why I'm very excited. And and I'm also optimistic for it. I wonder if it depends on where your allegiance lies. I mean, if your allegiance lies with the continuation of the human race, uh, it could be a very concerning thing. However, if your allegiance lies with the furthering of intelligent life in the universe, universe, then it's less concerning if the human race uh, is a, a bypassed or eliminated as part of the singularity because, you know, one of the outcomes, hopefully, either way, will be the perpetuation of a more intelligent species and hopefully one that's a little bit more... Civil, a lot more civilized and uh, less uh, violent and aggressive and destructive than the human race has been to date. Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic point, which which makes me go back and requalify my previous statement. So the extinction of the human race would be a bad thing only if there is no continuum between a human race and the next step of our evolution, right? So if we have uh, a singularity, and then we have certain kind of enlightened beings that we could become potentially, or transcendent beings, if you will, uh, much more intelligent, uh, perhaps uh, non-corporeal beings who live, uh, uh, who have overcome the limitations of bio- biology as we know it, uh, then that would be a fantastic thing, in my opinion, personally. Now, people would disagree with me, but I I think that would be a fantastic thing because, as you pointed out, there would be uh, sort of the the dissemination of higher intelligence, not only on our planet, but eventually throughout the universe. So the key issue for me is, is there any continuation between Homo sapiens as we know it and those species that could come after us? And as long as there is a continuation then I think we're making progress. I mean, you can claim that uh, the first hominids that came two or three million years ago, uh, like Lucy, for example, in Africa, uh, they went extinct. But they were a crucial step on the ladder of evolution for us to be who we are. And likewise, we are a crucial step for the next step of intelligence. And if it turns out that the purpose, in in manner of speaking, of 
Homo sapiens is to develop machine intelligence and then we get wiped out or become extinct. So we don't transcend as such. We don't mm-hmm. make the jump to uh, virtual uh, consciousness. We, we just mm-hmm. we create the machine mm-hmm. intelligence and then we, we end mm-hmm. up extinct. Would you see that as a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing? Yeah, uh, selfishly as a species, that might be a bad thing, but in the greater scheme of things, in, in the cosmic sense, it might still be a very positive thing, right? So, for example, dinosaurs went extinct, but that in terms provided incredible opportunities for a sort of a niche organism, which were the mammals at that time, to flourish and to basically literally take over the planet. And likewise, if, uh, you know, if uh, we go extinct, but from our ashes, there's the birth of greater intelligence and greater beings, even though in the personal sense, it may be sad, in the greater cosmic sense, it, it would still not be a bad outcome, definitely, I believe. And you said before you give the occurrence of a technological singularity in the next 20 to 40 years a 60% probability? Yeah, yeah, I would say so, definitely. And, and, and that's actually increasing. I would have said uh, probably a year or two ago, I would have said it, it was barely over 50%, and, and I, I believe that it, it is on the rise, that, that percentage is increasing. And, and, and how would you calculate that? probability what's it based on well that's a that's a great question um and it's not a there's no uh, uh a clear-cut mathematical formula that i can provide but in my personal uh case it is based on perhaps being exposed to more and more of those relevant ideas and basically accumulated the evidence that I was talking about beforehand. So um, I was very fortunate that I spent about 10 weeks this summer um, at Singularity University, which is located um, in in Ames, California, on NASA's campus. And when you have the opportunity for 10 weeks to live and sleep sleep there and to talk to some of the best minds in the world who are all considering those possibilities and look at the evidence and look at the progress we're making and we have made, then, you know, it is very hard to ignore that and, and not to increase the... It's impossible, I believe, to ignore that fact and, and those facts and not increase the probabilities. It's like climate change, if you will, in a way. Uh, many people deny that climate change is happening uh, and some people could say, well, I don't know, maybe it's happening, maybe it's not happening. But I believe that the more time you spend studying the issue, the more you're able to see the evidence accumulating. And at a certain point, uh, the probabilities start looking more like a certainty. Now, the singularity has not reached that point of certainty because it is not a deterministic process. There could be all kinds of uh, wide-scale disasters uh, planetary scale disasters like nuclear war, etc., that could either delay or outright um, remove the possibility of a singularity. But it is still a probable, uh, a very possible and likely uh, scenario. 
and those potential or the potentiality to wipe out the human race before we have an opportunity to pass the baton to machine mm-hmm. intelligence is one of the one of the things that's always made me think that we need to you know strive to achieve the singularity as quickly as possible we need to outrun the human race's inbuilt uh, instinct for self-destruction let me ask you about um the artelect war you're familiar with hugo de garris mm-hmm. yes i spoke at a singularity uh event in australia last year on a panel with hugo and you know, Hugo um, spent several hours over the course of the weekend making his case for the Artelect War. Uh, for those people who aren't familiar with Hugo, he's one of the leading artificial intelligence researchers in the world. He ran the artificial intelligence research program for China for about uh, 10 or 15 years. And he's an, he's an Aussie, by, um, uh, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, Hugo believes that the next great war will be the Artelect War. And basically what he's forecasting is there'll be a massive war between the, the, the members of the human race who want to develop artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and the, the, the components of the technological singularity. And then there'll be uh, another segment of the human race who see it as dangerous, uh, morally corrupt, religiously evil. <coughs> Take your pick and that there'll be a great war between those two camps, and he forecasts it'll be the first war in which billions of people die, not just uh, tens of millions. What, what, what are your feelings on that? I mean, uh, Hugo makes a fairly, uh, a, uh, you know, uh, a fairly good case for it. It's pretty hard to argue with his rationale. Do you feel that there's a probability that this could uh, lead us to the war of all wars? Well... Another person who has raised similar concerns is uh, Dick Clark, uh, the former U.S. Uh, cyber and, and anti-terrorism czar or, or, or um, leader, as, as he was, uh, I think, in the Bush administration. Uh, he wrote a book called Breakpoint, uh, which is uh, a work of fiction, and it's uh, situated in, I think, the year 2012 or 2013. It was written about 2005-06. And it deals precisely with that issue, uh, a number of people coming together and starting terrorist acts against the United States uh, with the purpose of destroying crucial infrastructure and preventing further progress in a number of these fields. Now, uh, that is a plausible scenario in, in my mind. However, uh, there are several ways of looking at it. First of all, I don't think it it could ever be properly called an, an all-out war. Uh, simplistically looking at it, uh, it would be the shortest war history has ever had because if one side is embracing the latest and greatest of advanced technologies and the other side refuses to, um, to do so, then it would be very hard to sustain that, that war uh, on an ongoing basis. I mean, basically, the, the, the so-called Terrans uh, would be crushed, I, I believe. Uh, now, that's why it, it is unlikely to be an all-out war. However, what it's more likely is to be a kind of a prolonged terrorist kind of a conflict or where uh, 
The weaker side, which is the Terrans or the, the, the technophobes, are basically trying to strike every once in a while certain um, infrastructures and destroy them. So in that sense, while they can slow down progress, I don't think they can stop it. And yes, it would come at perhaps if it happens, it would come at a great cost of human life. But in the long term, in the greater scheme of things, I do not believe that they have the potential to uh, prevent the singularity or to change the long-term outcome, falling short of, of a complete nuclear holocaust, right? So I'm not talking of, you know, their capability of, of putting their hands on a single or a few nuclear weapons and blowing them here and there. That would not be sufficient to stop it. That would be sufficient to perhaps slow down the progress, uh, and kill a lot of people, clearly, but to stop the possibility entirely, you need an all-out nuclear war between um, state players, I believe. Because at this moment, at least only states have the capability to unleash multiple nuclear hits to, on each other, rather than, you know, a few. If there was an announcement by the, uh, let's say, the most developed countries in the world or an announcement by the United Nations or the Security Council tomorrow that all research into artificial intelligence and nanotechnology was being halted permanently due to the threat of uh, artificial intelligence taking over the world or because it was considered to be uh, against the will of God or Allah. How would mm -hmm. you feel? Would, would you be prepared to go to war to defend our ability to, uh, you know, invent these technologies? Well, look, you don't have to go to war to work on these technologies. Take, for example, stem cells research. The Bush administration banned all funding for stem cell research, and all that that did was it put the United States um, at a disadvantage on the global marketplace. And many of those scientists simply found uh, themselves working in labs outside of the United States. So the world is a very complicated place with many jurisdictions. And if one, even major one like the United States, or even a few of those jurisdictions decide to come up with such a De decree against artificial intelligence by fiat, I'm sure that there would be still many jurisdictions which would, uh, or enough of them, which would refuse to, to follow that. Um, and, and also, you know, I, there's many ideas for creating labs on, for example, in international waters floating on ships, um, which is one idea. Uh, where, um, you know, national legislation uh, does not apply. And um, another very important feature of exponentially, uh, exponentially advancing technologies is the fact that what used to take tens of thousands of people um, and a state sponsor and used to cost multi-billions of dollars 
nowadays is accomplished usually for a few million dollars by uh, a committed team of a couple dozen people. So you do not necessarily require the state participation anymore. And it is more about the state not being able to prevent something uh, uh, rather than, 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 than being able to do so. Take, for example, space. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union used to be the greatest uh, space uh, powers in the world. Um, both of them employed tens of thousands of scientists and tens of billions of dollars, probably trillions of dollars for the last 50 years. Um, and now we have serious efforts, private efforts, um, going forward towards the commercialization of space. We have people like Richard Branson, who is opening a spaceport in, I think, in New, Me in New Mexico, um, and who is going to be charging people about $220,000, um, which is, you know, it costs half a billion dollars for NASA to, to send somebody to space. A single launch of the space shuttle was about $500 million. Now, Richard Branson will be loading five or six or seven passengers and he would be sending them not all the way to the International Space Station, but about 100 kilometers up. And he would be charging them $200,000 each, so about a million dollars per launch. Now, that's a factor of 500 price differential, right? So take research in artificial intelligence, and I believe it exhibits the same uh, feature. What used to take many scientists and state support uh, and billions of dollars worth of uh, grant money now can be done by committed individuals um, anywhere across the globe for probably a fraction of the cost that was necessary before. That's the liberation of technology. That's, that's actually part of, you know, one of the precursors of the singularity. We have exponential growth not only in capabilities, but exponentially decreasing costs. Therefore, the, the, the government would be, I believe, entirely incapable of, of stopping that or preventing it from happening. And, and I mean, politically speaking, put, put away all the other issues to the side and just think about politically. We cannot ever get... Ten governments, which are relatively homogeneous, such as, say, the European governments, to agree on a, on a single issue and a, on a single policy. Now, imagine a global context of a 200 countries that we have on, on our planet, each with, with its intricacies and self-interest. And now imagine if we can come up with you know, sufficiently powerful coordinated decision to go against the, the development of artificial intelligence. I think it's very unlikely. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I guess the, the conflict I've always seen in my mind is on one hand, um, unfortunately, most of the world's leading uh, countries, democracies anyway, still tend to have um, either a either a conscious religious bias or they increasingly, as we've seen in the U.S. since the 80s, and I know in Australia it's uh, trending in the same pattern, they have a very well-funded, politically motivated religious right that manages mm -hmm. to, um, 
to throw its weight around politically uh, on social and moral issues. Um, and so I can imagine that, on one hand, it wouldn't be too hard to get the world's major democracies to uh, agree that there was a, a religious or quasi-religious moral imperative to stop the development of machine intelligence. On the other hand, we all know that our economies are driven increasingly by developments in computing technology. So in, in order to continue to build ever more powerful computers, but then say, but we're not going to develop artificial intelligence, it's going to be a very difficult balancing act to maintain. If, uh, if you, like me, believe that there's a, there's a very um, high likelihood that, that sentience or consciousness is really just an output of a sufficiently advanced uh, processor with the right software mm-hmm. running on it. I know Jaron Lanier has some views about that, and he's been very vocal about uh, software versus hardware for many years. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting balancing act to you know, continue to build more and more powerful computers but try and avoid uh, the singularity from happening. I don't know how you do that. Let me, let me ask you um, what... Uh, you know, one of the things I, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been listening for the eighteen last eighteen months, and you know, I've been interested in the singularity since probably the mid '90s, and um, you know, it's fascinating mm-hmm. to me to have seen it. You know, fifteen, sixteen years ago, if I mentioned the singularity to somebody, they looked at me like I was on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and increasingly, thanks to the work of people like yourself and, of course, Ray and uh, guys like that, it's um, becoming more and more common for people to at least have heard of it, know a little bit about what it means. Um, but I, I was listening, thinking, well, you know, uh, when you interview people in this field, you know, month in, month out, over a year and a half, you, you're obviously going to have learnt a lot. What I'm interested in what you've learned. What are, what are the major things you've learned from your stellar list of guests over the last 18 months and, of course, your time at the Singularity University and whether or not your experience in, in talking to these people has changed your thinking on the Singularity in any way? Well, okay, let me start with uh, first um, the ideas of, the people that I've had the pleasure of, of meeting and talking to in the last couple of years. So one of the things that I've noticed, and, and this is also a major, major difference between the community, the singularity community and any religion or most religions, is the fact that it is very non-homogeneous. In other words, take the Catholic Church, for example. The Catholic Church basically writes the law in stone as far as Christianity, or at least as far as Catholicism is concerned. So there's a, a single interpretation which uh, this, the, the Catholic Church embraces, and therefore every, everything else with, which does not fall within that interpretation is heresy. Now, the scientific community, um, which is sort of, which has congregated around the idea of the singularity is very different. Because it is a number of people coming from a whole slew of different fields, from mathematics to physics to chemistry to biology to medicine 
to space through computer science, through some entrepreneurs, uh, you name it. There's all kinds of people there, uh, each one of whom has a little bit different idea about what the singularity is and what it should be, and each one of whom works on it in their own way. So it is a lot more multifaceted and multidirectional, and, and that's what makes it so beautiful. And that's why also it is um, anything is possible because it, it, because it is free in, in the broader sense of the meaning of the term free. Uh, there is no single um, dogma that everybody has to abide by. Um, and, and so that, that's one of the things that I've noticed uh, that's really impressed me. Um, now, let me see if I'm... Can you remind me again the, the, the latter part of your question? Yeah, what has your thinking about the singularity changed in any major way over the course of the last 18 months since you've been interviewing these people? Well, yes, as I said, for one thing... Uh, I think that the probability is increasing um, and it is a more, much more likelier event so than I previously anticipated. Uh, so my thinking has changed in the sense that I believe this to be now much more likely than I believed before and that happened directly as a result of me communicating with some of whom I would call, you know, some of the smartest people that I've ever had pleasure to talk to. Um, at the same time, though, I have to notice this too, because, again, this is not a religion. There are some very notable uh, people who do not believe that the singularity is a viable uh, possibility or is unlikely overall. And I'm always... Uh, very surprised to see who uh, who draws the line where. So um, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, Charlie Stross, who wrote a fantastic science fiction book um, called Accelerando, um, and who is well known across the world for his very hard science approach to science fiction. And despite of him writing that book, he believes that, um, as he put it, the world is a complex place and easy and simple ways of explaining it and understanding it are usually wrong. <laughs> so in, in his opinion, for example, the singularity is too simplistic, too easy, too convenient, and too... Uh, beautiful of a concept to be through <laughs> for our world. And this is, again, where we come to, to you know, um, the scientific method and, and, and religion again. You know, Voltaire once said that doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. <laughs> so, so if you embrace religion, then you embrace certainty. Then basically you're told how the world came to be, you're told who you are, you're told, you're told how you're supposed to lead the good life, and that's about it. Everything is supposed to be clear, and that's why people love it, because it's very convenient and it's very comfortable. Doubt, on the other hand, is not a pleasant condition. It's very uncomfortable. 
But as I said before, all progress is based on doubt. And thus, while I'm embracing the singularity and I'm embracing it very much so, still I am keeping a little bit of an open mind and a little bit of a doubt too. And, and, and therefore, as I said, if the evidence changes and if I'm exposed to new, more powerful idea uh, or, or ideas, um, you know, I'm always willing to reconsider and, and admit if I've made a mistake. By the way, I have to give you full props for having the courage to interview Charlie Stross. People have been, um, I'm a big fan of Charlie's work too, particularly Accelerano, and people have been suggesting I interview Charlie on this show for years, and I always give them the same response. I'm, I'm too scared. I mean, I've interviewed everyone from Ray Kurzweil to, <laughs> to Noam Chomsky, some of the world's leading intellectuals, and I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that, but Charlie Stross, man, that, that guy scares me. Yeah, uh, I mean, Corey Doktorov said that Charlie has an evil mind once after working with him on their latest book, which is called Rapture of the Nerds, by the way. Oh, um, uh, and, and I agree with that, and, uh, but I think he's a brilliant guy. And, and for me, the, the only thing is preparation. I, I try to do my best to prepare um, as much as I can for an interview, and that usually includes reading the full book that I would be discussing and much more about the, the biography of the person. And, and still, you, I, at least me, I'm always, well, not intimidated, but I hope not during the interview, but when I'm approaching it, I'm always feeling intimidated by you know, the, the depth of knowledge and the, the intellectual prowess of, of those people. And I have to say, from my point of view, the hardest interview I've done was perhaps the one with uh, Dr. Stephen Wolfram, um, who is the creator of Wolfram Alpha, which is most recently being adapted in the iPhone 4S Siri system. And the author of A New Kind of Science, one of the most brilliant and terrifying books I've read in the last 15 years, too. Well, and, 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 and that's where you did much more than me, because I approached interview uh, as I approached all the other ones trying to read the book in full before I do the intro the interview itself and I admit that is one time where I failed miserably I just it took me I think two weeks to get through the first hundred or two hundred pages and it's I think twelve hundred pages worth of a book and uh, it is so dense that I was unable to complete it on time especially <laughs> It is a very dense book, yeah. I, I remember reading it when it first came out. I remember spending like an entire summer reading it, and uh, yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's an astounding fellow. Well, you know, well done on interviewing both of those, mate. You get total props. Thank you. I was very fortunate. And, and again, it took, Charlie took over a year, maybe a year and a half worth of uh, attempts before I was able to get him on, on the podcast. And I'm still failing with Corey Doctorow, uh, so, but I was happy to get people like Werner Vinge, who actually coined the term, the singularity, the technological singularity, and, and also Robert J. Sawyer, who is, uh, another one of my favorite science fiction authors. I've, I've interviewed Werner as well. He's a, he's a lovely fellow, isn't he? Very, very easy to talk to. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I, I enjoy his books. I enjoyed interviewing him very much. And he's also... Uh, one of those people who presented me with that fascinating dichotomy, he's, and that's a quote, I am very low tech at home, end of quote. That was 
Uh, that remark from him came during the preliminary uh, notes that were exchanged between me and him. Uh, basically, him telling me that he only has a phone at home and that we're not going to be doing video <laughs> interview, but I would call his phone line. Um, or at least that was the case with me. And, and yeah, so it was fascinating to see how the person who coined the term, the technological singularity, is very low tech um, after his own admission <laughs> himself. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us and, and share some of your learnings and thoughts. Of course, people can listen to your podcast, uh, the Singularity podcast, uh, Singularity uh, one-on-one, um, singularitysymposium.com, the Singularity weblog. Is that the right name for it? Yeah, the easiest way perhaps is to go to singularityweblog.com and I have uh, links uh, both to the Singularity one-on-one podcast there and to the website which is called singularitysymposium.com. And uh, on Twitter at Singularity Blog, yeah? Absolutely, you got it. Before you go, tell us one thing about yourself that people probably would be surprised about. Ah, you got me. Um, <laughs> surprised about? Huh. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, my alias for the blog is Socrates. Mm-hmm. Now, Socrates, and that name was given to me by a number of people when I was in university and even before that, because I tend to ask a lot of questions tend to put tend to doubt things before I embrace them originally I'm kind of skeptically predisposed if I may say generally uh, or at least I'm very inquisitive and inquiring uh, and that makes some people very uncomfortable very uncomfortable um, just like people who perhaps uh, like philosophy may be surprised uh, to find out that many people disliked Socrates uh, for his behavior and um, eventually ended up sentencing him to death. Um, so perhaps people might be surprised to find out that uh, even though I'm very nice on the podcast, uh, I tend to be a little more confrontational or too inquisitive and too questioning in person that than some people are willing to tolerate. <laughs> You know, some people take it uh, great. Other people cannot uh, stand it. Um, Because the thing is, I am not very good diplomat. I don't beat around the bush. I believe that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. I do not embrace useless preambles. And I, you know... (laughs) I go for the point usually, and uh, yeah, <laughs> that that has its its pros and its its cons. <laughs> My wife often says to me, "Stop talking to me like I'm somebody on your podcast." <laughs> well, that means that she's listening to your podcast. That's great. <laughs> no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. No, no. <laughs> she just knows what I'm like on the podcast. Well, Nicola, um, again, congratulations, and, and, and I guess thank you for doing the podcast. It's a great information resource, and um, 
you know, I, I, I think that uh, people like yourself play a, a huge role in bringing awareness and understanding around these sorts of issues. And it's a, it's a tough job to do it day in and day out. And you do a terrific job. And um, I hope I get to Toronto one of these days soon and we can catch up for a chat in person. That'd be great. And if you're ever in Australia, make sure you drop in and um, we'll look after you. Uh, I myself haven't uh, had the pleasure of visiting Australia yet, and I'd love to. Uh, but whatever may be the case that happens first, whether me popping over there or you coming over here, absolutely, I'd love to get together and uh, you know get to meet you personally. We'll have to get you down for the next Singularity Summit. It's on t- usually uh, later in the year, sort of August in Melbourne. We'll have to get you down for the one next year. Mm-hmm. That that sounds fantastic. The the only thing I would say about that is that um, unfortunately, while my blog and my podcast have managed to generate uh, you know some public attention, and I do enjoy um, a, a good you know number of uh, listeners. Uh, financially speaking, I haven't succeeded in turning it into a sustainable uh, entity yet. And therefore, my travel budget is very limited, <laughs> to say the least. Oh, well, we'll see what we can do about that. Yeah. All right, Nicola. Again. Okay, Cameron. Thanks for your time, mate. Well,